welcome to the Bronova Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Hello, my friends. Welcome to this week's episode of the Bronova Podcast. As always, it's your host, Thomas Pierce, here to bring you an informative, insightful, and intentional episode to model healthy communication for men. If you're just joining us, uh, this is a series on uh, a book called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Normally, we have conversations with inspired and inspiring guests to share their lived experiences, but I am going a little bit of a different route with this series, going directly to a primary source for data about happiness and relationships and how important relationships are with our long-term happiness. So if you did not listen to the last episode, I recommend you go back, listen to that episode, because it lays the foundation from the first four chapters of this book, talking about how to define and quantify what a good life is, why relationships play an important part in that good life, uh, and also specifics on this study, the data and the details on who was participating in it, how the study was conducted, the kind of questions they asked over a very long period of time of these people's whole lives, talking about the stages of life and how we experience different things depending on where in our adult life we are. So adolescence, young adults, midlife, and then late life. And then lastly, practical steps to take that you can take to improve your relationships after kind of establishing why those relationships matter. So this is going to be part two of three. I uh, originally thought that this is going to be a two part episode, but the book is pretty dense. And, uh, as you know, I have a day job, so I haven't finished reading it, (laughs) but I got through three chapters this last week that were, absolutely dynamite. Once again, this book is phenomenal. I really recommend you read it personally, but I was inspired to share what I learned along the way. So this is going to be chapter five, six, and seven, talking about uh, your relationships and why prioritizing them matters. And then specifically, adapting to challenges how to be present and why being present helps you and your relationship thrive. And then some specifics about your life partner and the relationship with your husband or wife or whoever your partner is and how you can practically improve that relationship and lessons learned from the study of looking at successful, healthy, long-term relationships. And then also looking at the marriages in the study that did not work out, so ended in divorce, or even if they stayed together, both parties reported being unhappy. So without further ado, let's jump into it. Chapter five, attention to relationships, your best investment. So the first thing they talk about here, they also... Uh, I went through all the details in the first book, but just to give credit where it's due for this book, the authors of this book 
are Robert Waldinger, MD, and Mark Schultz, PhD, who are the director and assistant director of the actual study that is an ongoing live study. So, once again, the book is called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness by these two gentlemen. Here we go. Chapter 5. Leads off with a kind of a concept we're familiar with. A lot of people, as they get older, their priorities change. And in this study, nearly all of the participants in old age were concerned about how they spent their time. And many felt that they had not given enough thought to what they paid attention to. So they weren't intentional about what they did with their time, with their precious time. And as they got older, they realized they had less of it. And upon reflecting, upon some forced reflection, they realized that they weren't intentional about what they did with their lives. Maybe they were just kind of running a playbook. Something that we've talked about a lot on the Bruno podcast. They also point out how there's an economic or transactional language with English that we use with relationships. Spending time, paying attention. Um, but unlike money, time and attention are not things that we can replenish. So there's no more time to go buy back. It's not a currency that can be bartered for or traded in, in a little nest egg to build. Time and attention are, are our actual lives. So it's this idea of when we offer our time and attention to someone or something, we're not merely spending and paying, but we're giving our lives. The first thing that jumps out here, social media and cell phone use, screen use. Part of the reason I was inspired to start this podcast was the idea of the ratio of content consumed versus content created. And I asked myself, what am I creating? How much am I consuming? A lot. How much am I creating? Not anything. So that was behind, you know, a bit of the genesis of the Bro Nouveau podcast. And there was a a study about, so it was a pretty, pretty clever study. It was using a, the questionnaires were actually on folks' cell phones. And it would pop, I believe how it worked was it would pop up at random times. And so they were in the middle of doing something else. And the study would say, in this task you were just doing before I interrupted you, how were you actually focused on the task you, the thing you were doing with your cell phone? And of the people sampled, a whole half of them were thinking about something other than what they were actually supposed to be doing. That sample size was solid. It was 5,000 people in 80 countries and over a variety of occupations. So I think that speaks to the idea of our fractured attention with our cell phones and our various other pieces of information contesting for our attention. And the, you know, useful thing about social media and the information age we live in, of course, is the access to information. But they also use this example of two different types of birds, an owl and a hummingbird. An owl is still when we picture an owl on, on a tree limb, focused and very intent. It's surveying the environment. It is paying attention if it's hunting for a something it can do, uh, a, a prey that a prey that it can eat, so a squirrel or a mouse. Whereas a hummingbird has to flit around from tiny 
flower petal to flower petal to get little pieces of nectar. And if we think about our intention, our attention, you know, thinking about would we rather be very present and doing important things, like important being one meal that's going to satisfy what we need, or do we want to be flitting around like a hummingbird? And then the last note I have from this section is just tying back to this idea that what we give our life to is actually our life, as in the things we pay attention to, that is our lives. There's no way around it. Your career is your life. It is what you commit to. It's what you spend time on. And tying into that, there's this idea that attention is the most basic form of love, right? And that makes sense. If you think about it, part of being an attentive partner to your partner, your romantic partner, is giving them attention, noticing things about them, being considerate, putting down the cell phone to focus on them. We're going to go into detail on that later. Specific to social media, um, you know, there's a lot of new data. It's obviously a new phenomenon, you know, having cell phones at young age. But what we do know for sure is that early, early adolescent experiences with peers matter. And the data is not conclusive when it comes to, you know, virtual interaction and in-person interaction, but we can assume pretty safely that social skills learned digitally are not the same as the ones learned physically, right? Thinking about reading people's facial expressions, their body language, how their shoulders are shaped, how their eyebrows are shaped. Are they blushing? Are they looking intensely in the eyes? Are they smiling? Is their smile authentic or is it fake? Is their smile forced or is it relaxed? And, you know, those nonverbal communication skills are obviously very important for success and for happiness. And it's unclear at this point whether the impact of social media on adolescence ability, it's unclear what the impact of social media is on adolescents' ability to read social cues and recognize emotions. So, and it's probably not just, not just adolescents, right? Because if we're all adults listening right now, you know, our, our ability to read social cues diminished if we have our faces in our phones. Absolutely. And, you know, with that, there's the, the recent history of the COVID pandemic. And in that pandemic, diseases of despair, depression, and anxiety increased. And although obviously increased social media use did not cause the despair, depression, or anxiety in that period, it was caused by social isolation. It's worth noting that those increases in despair, depression, anxiety actually core responded or took place at the same time as an increase in virtual interaction, right? So if the idea is that virtual interaction can replace the real thing, that was pretty well shot down by COVID because our whole lives, if we're in a, you know, rich Western country or Eastern country or any country that had access to the internet and social media and a device to connect with the social media, that didn't fill the gap. So next, some practical social media recommendations. Per the data, engaging on social media actually gives you more of that feeling of connection than just observing. So by engaging, that means commenting, liking, 
expressing yourself. Uh, so essentially, don't be lurking. <laughs> All you lurkers out there, you know, throw a comment, throw a like, let the person know who is sharing about themselves or sharing an opinion that you have engaged with their opinion. You appreciate them putting that thought out there for you to enjoy. The classic, you know, dilemma with social media, I've heard it described as a funhouse mirror, which is a good description. Another way to think about the reality of social media is that it is, you know, others' external projections of themselves, but we are comparing our internal feelings with others' external projections. So it's pretty clear how those aren't going to line up, right? Because we have our insecurities inside. Other people put their best selves on the internet. And then we are comparing those two things. And one is obviously a curated, if it is a real piece of a time captured, it's just one moment in time captured. It doesn't represent the other person's entire life. Another way to kind of self-evaluate is, you know, check in after a scrolling session how do you how do you feel after that? Do you feel good? Do you feel bad? Just bring some awareness to it. Another practical tip is to if you are a frequent user, check in with the people who you care about. How does it impact them? Is it disruptive to your lives? Is it something they are aware of and it makes them uncomfortable? The last one is tech holidays. So build in time to be away from your phone. This is something I do I do consciously try to do. Go for a walk without my phone. Recently in the gym, not bring my phone. I've been running a lot recently and not bring my phone. So I think a big a big break would be awesome, right? Doing a whole week off on a holiday or something like that. But maybe more realistically is just little periods of the time where it's just us and we're just people on the earth, not with a piece of technology attached to us. Okay. So this idea of mindfulness is next up in this chapter, all about attention. Mindfulness is something that has been described a lot. It's in the zeitgeist. It's, it's, it's in vogue at the moment. Another way to think about it for people who are still unsure about what mindfulness is, and perhaps this definition applies to consciousness too, that would be just paying attention on purpose. So focusing, asking yourself questions like, what's here that I've never noticed before? That's an absolutely wonderful practice that I do. If I walk down a street, I've walked down many times, I ask myself or I challenge myself to notice something new. And when I do, it's kind of a nice little reward. And I feel like I've expanded my awareness. The other idea of, you know, <laughs> mindfulness and consciousness is the present, right? We've all seen the, the gurus talking about presence and consciousness and being in the moment. And that can be hard to connect to. It can be abstract. But look at it this way. If your mind is cluttered, which all of our minds are, unless we are Zen masters, it can quickly become a tunnel, a narrow tunnel at that of thought and worry. In contrast, the present moment, the actual 
existence around us can feel spacious and contain so much more than just the content of our minds. So, you know, if, if, if someone is listening right now and they're on the, the Eastern border of Ukraine or the Eastern regions of Ukraine, probably not, you know, as feeling like a spacious, peaceful space around them. But if you have that luxury, that privilege, think about it that way and try to tune into what's going on around you through this mindfulness, through paying attention to your surroundings on purpose, because it can actually be much more rich and expansive than just the worries in your mind. Another way I've heard this described is to go up to a vista, go up to a place with a nice view, and look out upon that vista, whether it's a valley or some place where you can see for a long time. And let your consciousness expand to fill that space. Imagine your presence, your attention, your awareness expanding out to fill that space and feel that vastness and feel how peaceful that is compared to the narrow dark tunnel of our minds. So little primer on mindfulness. Moving on back to how we can apply this attention to our relationships. So at the end of the last chapter, if you all remember, trying to understand your friends, asking them questions. I had, I was with one of my best friends in the whole world, and I asked him one of these questions from the book, and uh, totally caught him off guard, and he <laughs> was very uncomfortable. And it's kind of a classic moment in my life, but... I explained to him why I was doing what I was doing and, you know, where my curiosity was coming from. And then he kind of understood and, you know, he, it was good, but, uh, that was a funny thing that happened. But another way to, to do this is to use this kind of intentional attention to the benefit of your relationships. So there was an experiment they used with the, the data and with the questions they asked the participants. And that question would be, their experimental question is, is it more important to be accurate in understanding our partner's feelings or is it more important that our partners see we are making an effort to understand? So it's a lot of, you know, often we have these self-limiting ideas, like self-limiting ideas. Why would I even try to do that? I'm not going to be good at it. In this case, it would be, why would I even try to, you know, comprehend my wife's feelings? Like it's so complicated. I would probably just make an ass of myself, not understand it. Well, actually, no. The data says that, you know, understanding a person is great, but trying to understand them goes a long way too because they appreciate it and they see it. So trying doesn't hurt and will lead you down the path of developing that understanding. Some questions you can ask to intentionally consider how the other person is feeling. Questions like, how is this person feeling? <laughs> pretty direct, pretty straightforward. What is this person thinking? Am I missing something here? How would I feel if I were in this person's shoes? So it's a practice in empathy. It's a practice in putting yourself in their situation, 
putting their stressors, their challenges, their insecurities, their pride, their ego, their fears, and trying to understand them and think about how could those things all package up and lead into how they're interacting with me in this moment. And of course, just like my example with my buddy who I freaked out, (laughs) let them know, you know, I'm just curious and I'm trying to understand you. It's because you're one of my best friends and I value our relationship and I want to strengthen it. And that kind of focus attention, both in intimate relationships and in friendships, leads to reciprocal love and consideration, just like the upward spiral of the last chapter. Another practical step is to have a bit of forced reflection of the people in your life. You know, of those people who are receiving your time, who you interact with, who of them are receiving your full attention. Think of uh, one or two relationships in your life. How can you dedicate more attention to them? Just like we just said, focus attention leads to reciprocal love and consideration. The more interested you are in others, the more interested they become in you and the more interesting you are, right? Have you ever met someone who, you know, was hitting on you or was just genuinely curious? They're like, oh, you're from, you're from that place? Like, oh, what's that place like? Oh, I've heard about that dish there. It uh, has these ingredients, right? Or, oh my God, this language that they speak there is so beautiful. You know, um, how many dialects are there? Or what's your, you know, the characteristics of your home city? All those things. You know, engaging with someone genuinely and actually just being curious, showing them that communicates to them subconsciously probably. This person is engaged. This person cares. This person is a person I want to be friends with. Okay, so that was the chapter on focused focused attention. Quick summary. Your attention is your life. What you give your time to, you give your life to. Social media is not a cure for a lack of authentic connection, so it's a good tool. If you're going to use it, engage with it directly and actually participate in the conversation rather than just lurking. (laughs) Mindfulness is paying attention on purpose. And a nice little fun exercise is to ask yourself, what's here that I have never noticed before? Trying is very important. And according to the study and according to the, you know, asking peers or, or excuse me, asking couples in the study, What's more important to them, having your partner understand you perfectly or having your partner just care and try. Trying obviously matters more. You know, it's kind of clear. And if you want to develop that empathetic mindset, you can ask yourself, how might I feel if I were in this person's shoes? All right, moving on. Chapter six, adapting to challenges in relationships. Ooh, spicy boy. Here we go. Oh, so <clears throat> it starts off with this very, this, this chapter with a very philosophical question. So the data show that the healthiest participants in the study had the best relationships. Okay, sweet. But 
<laughs> also, many of the participants' lowest moments involve other people. So what is this double-edged sword scenario? And that's the truth. There's a vulnerability, right, to having friendships and relationships. There's a inherent exposure to being hurt that comes with being in a trusting relationship. And part of that are tough conversations and being hurt and being exposed to the inconsideracies. That's <laughs> not a word. The lack of consideration of others or someone knowing what hurts you and doing it anyway. So how do we deal with that? Well, first this idea of reflexive versus reflective. So emotional reactions can become automatic. They can become reflexive, just like when a doctor hits your knee in the right spot and the knee kicks out. There's this idea of an action tendency. So we, we take it, an action tendency, exactly what it sounds like, a automatic behavior that kind of develops. With stressful events come a need for us to cope. That can be called a coping style. So a coping style is a pattern of thinking and behaving that arises when stressful events occur. Those coping, we kind of talked about positive coping habits and negative coping habits last episode. So that's a familiar concept. So I think this is a, this was one that kind of struck me, you know, the, the emotional reactions that can become a tendency. So let's say, for example, you have a dog that just fucking shits on the floor all the time. And every time it shits on the floor, you get pissed off and you have, ah, oh, you know, stomping around and screaming and having this reflexive reaction to it instead of, you know, approaching it in a different manner that might get a better outcome. The data also show through experiences of people in the, in the study that the inability or refusal to, to face challenges directly and perhaps to just lean on your reflexive coping style instead of doing something uncomfortable, this refusal to face the challenge dire directly and engage your support network can have enormous consequences. Okay, avoidance. So avoiding conflict, pretty common. Newsflash, <laughs> the studies show avoiding problems in relationships make the, <laughs> make the issues worse. <laughs> wow, I had to go 200 pages deep in a book to, to find this. Can you believe that, guys? <laughs> avoiding problems in your relationships makes the problems worse. <laughs> uh, so a little more specifically, and without being... Uh, smart ass. Looking at the study data, those who avoided thinking and talking about difficulties had worse memory and were less satisfied with their lives than those who tended to face difficulties head on. So remember, because this whole study looks at all areas of these people's lives from the time that they're 14 to the time that they die, we can pair these things two together. So let's look at their health and their memory when they're old and let's look at how they dealt with their issues when they were young, and what correlates. What correlates is that those who avoided thinking and talking about difficulties had worse memory and were less satisfied with their lives. This feels like a total 
affirmation of what I'm trying to do here. You know, talk about it, develop expression, develop the ability to communicate, and don't be afraid to be honest. Being inflexible and rigid in our thinking makes us more vulnerable to challenging and changing dynamic situations. That makes sense, right? The palm tree bends, but it doesn't break. The oak tree is strong, but it breaks, right? Maybe it's not the oak tree, but a hard a hardwood tree will break and, and, and snap before a palm tree will. So flexing with challenges and changing circumstances in our lives is a very important skill. There's the example of seismic construction, right? If you've ever lived in an area where there are earthquakes, you know that there are certain building codes. Again, this is such an Americentric thing. In certain countries that can afford things like building codes and the ability to enforce them, if you live in an area with seismic activity, the buildings have to have a certain amount of flex, right? It's a similar idea for our own mental capacity. Next up, we have a very practical way of reacting, so specific to relationships we care about. This is called the WISER model of reacting. This is an acronym, so W-I-S-E-R, that we will get into. The fundamental logic behind this WISER model of reacting. Our thoughts have a strong influence on our emotions. Okay? That makes sense. That also means that we can influence or observe or understand our emotions. Maybe instead of using or just having our brain and our mind create problems for us, we can actually use it to change how we look at our emotions. So this WISER model, the acronym is... W for watch, I for interpret, S for select, E for engage, and R for reflect. So specifically, this is for this is an internal model for how we deal with ourselves in a tough moment or conversation. This is something internal for us to use to observe ourselves, right? This is intrinsic. This is not <laughs> judging other people for how they deal with tough situations. This is a way to evaluate and assist ourselves. And the, the underlying logic behind this is that slowing down allows us to consider possibilities and think about the likelihood of success for those possibilities. So let's say, uh, let's take an example for me. Let's say, um, Kendall, my beautiful, wonderful girlfriend, um, she has a choice to spend time with her family or with me uh, for a weekend. For some reason, I can't go. We can't go together. That would be the easiest solution. <laughs> Often, I'm the the one who doesn't want to do that. So she'll laugh when she hears this. But let's say in this situation, she has, there's no way for me to be with her family. She wants to spend time with me and her family, of course. Then she decides to spend time with her family, for example, in this example. Now, I have a choice, and I have a, a path I have to go down. I, I'm going to have feelings about this decision that she made, and I can react flippantly. I can have a reflexive reaction, 
or I can be reflective about the situation and decide how best to engage, which way is going to be the best for myself and my relationship and my partner. So let's jump into it. Step one, watch. So don't, (laughs) there's a funny, uh, I guess this is a psych therapist thing. Uh, don't just do something, sit there, right? So the, usually the phrase is don't just sit there, do something, but this is the opposite. So don't just do something. Don't just let your trained behavior lead you to a reflexive, reactive action. Sit there. Our initial impressions of a situation are powerful, but they're rarely complete, So W, watch the entire situation, the environment, the person you are interacting with, and yourself. Is this situation unusual or is it common? What typically happens next? This is another perfect example (laughs) for my relationship. Kendall's going to kill me. Uh, We're leaving somewhere. Kendall drove or she took the keys and then she says, do you have the keys? (laughs) <laughs> or, or I ask her, do you have the keys? And then she freezes. She's, you know, she has a big reaction. She's like, no, I don't. <laughs> and then 30 seconds later, she finds them. So in this scenario, it's a common scenario. I know what typically happens next, so I don't need to worry about it. Examples like that. So in those situations, you can watch. Instead of me getting upset and being like, oh, Damn, like, <laughs> we can't drive the car. You know, ask myself questions to get more context. And lastly, observe yourself. So how are you reacting physically and emotionally? If This is just a, a personal side note. If you've never tried to observe your physical reactions to emotional situations, try and do it. It's very interesting. Okay, step two of the wiser model. Interpret. If you think about it, interpreting is something that we do constantly, subconsciously assessing what is happening around us and what it means for us. Situations are rarely only about us or all about us. Other people are also experiencing and interpret interpreting them. Other people are participating in them. There would be no situations if it wasn't for other people to create and dance with the situations with us also creating and dancing in them. A big step in interpreting is assessing what's at stake for yourself. This is a big highlight in my notes. This is important. Feeling emotional means you care. You have a stake in this, and it's affecting you in some way. So ask yourself, why am I getting emotional, and what is it I'm assuming in this situation? So the goal of the interpret phase is to expand our understanding beyond our initial automatic perception. Just like we were talking about empathy before. It's almost like having empathy for the whole situation or alternatively investigate. Don't make a snap judgment, investigate. Don't put your name, your reputation on the line without investigating the sources. Step three, select. Step three of the wiser model. So we've had watch, we've had interpret, now it's time to select and choose from the options. So given what's at stake for you and the resources at your disposal, what can you do? What would be a good outcome here? 
in this stage, we want to clarify what our goals are and what resources we have at our disposal. This stage is selecting a strategy that's obviously highly personal and influenced by all kinds of factors, including cultural norms and individual values. Side note, someone else's behavior is also informed by their cultural norms and individual values, right? So going back to asking questions and interpreting and watching, that's part of understanding how other people behave too, right? The last part of this is reflecting on what we're good at and what our weaknesses are. This increases our chances of success. So, personal example. I am... What am I not good at? Uh, A lot of things. I would say... I can be, I won't, I won't elaborate because it's, it's too personal, but there are things with my relationship with Kendall and everyone will have this shared experience. There are things, whether it's things from the past or things that just are very sensitive to me. And I know that engaging with those things immediately, I will not do well. So for me, my select there would be to probably wait a little bit reflect more and not just not jump in. You know, obviously if it bothered me, I'm going to remember it. I'm going to think about it. But if it's something super sensitive to me and something that makes me maybe uh, hurt easily or upset easily, I know to treat, treat it with carefully, right? So to be careful and cautious before going to step four, that's engaging. So wiser model, watch, interpret, select, engage. So now it's time to do it. It's time to implement. So respond as skillfully as you can. Engage in the strategy that you've selected. And the last phase is uh, step five, which is to reflect. So we've watched the situation. We've interpreted what's going on. What's going on with the other person? Why are they acting this way? Why am I acting this way? What's my best way to move forward? Move forward. And now think about it. How did that work out? Did I make things better or worse? Have I learned something new about the challenge I'm facing and about the best response? Reflecting on our responses to a challenge can yield dividends for the future, right? Because it can make us better prepared for the next time. Some of the questions you can ask, in light of all I've just reflected on, how would I do things differently next time? And what have I learned? The book has five to eight questions for each of these stages. I won't read them all. Go buy the book. I'll give you a sample for watch. Did I face the problem directly or did I try to avoid it? Oh, excuse me. This is all reflecting. Okay. These are all reflection exercises. So the same thing holds. I'm just going to read a little bit of them. But reflecting on the watch phase. Did I face the problem directly or did I try to avoid it? Interpret. Did I recognize how I felt and what was at stake for me in the situation? Have I focused too much on what's going on in my own head and not enough on what's going on around me? Select. Was I clear about the outcome I wanted? Did I choose the tools that would work best in meeting the current challenge? Reflecting on actually engaging and doing the engagement. Did I practice my response? 
or run it by a trusted confidant to increase the likelihood that it would succeed. And then lastly, what have I learned? You can think of the wiser model as a coaching tool for the 10% of your life when you feel stuck or you notice yourself behaving in ways that don't make sense to you. (laughs) This is not a line from the book. This is just my own personal line. In other words, take control and better yourself and your life. Okay. Moving on within this this topic of conflict and managing conflict. Getting stuck. And getting unstuck. So stuckness is a uh, tongue-in-cheek uh, clinical term from the from the book. The authors see it in the study data and in their psychotherapy practices. The feeling of stuck in one's life and the ability to not really fully articulate why they feel that way. Particularly with relationships and engaging with other people, isolation from other people becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Another way to put it is a quote from Shohaku Okumura, which says, the world we live in is the world we create. So this would point to the power of the self and the individual to influence their lives. Another really interesting thing when it comes to getting unstuck in relationships that I I saw and jumped out to me was that people often have similar problems in different relationships. So patterns repeat. Things that go wrong, whether it be in a you know, intimate romantic relationship or in friendships. And a way that you can kind of see these patterns and avoid repeating the same problems are getting honest perspectives on your life from people who you can trust. Those can be very illuminating and moving past this feeling of getting stuck. There's also the idea of self-distance reflection. If someone else told you the story about the stuck person, how would you respond to it? And lastly, lastly, stay open to the possibility that there is more we can learn about ourselves, always more we can learn. Allow yourself to be a beginner about yourself. That is such a fucking beautiful line. Allow yourself to be a beginner about yourself. Don't assume you know everything. Don't assume that just because you've lived in your own head for your whole life that you actually understand you. I have just very recently started internal family systems therapy, which is showing me all the parts of me that I never knew were there. I never let them be articulated. And it's absolutely amazing. So I love that idea of staying open, that there's more we can learn about ourselves. Lastly, when it comes to relationships and adapting and success in relationships, sharing is very important. So because uh, 80 to 90% of the first generation of the study participants fought in World War II, there was interesting data to be pulled about sharing war experiences. So of the soldiers... Those who shared some part of their experiences in the war 
they were more likely to stay married than those who were who did not share. What that teaches us is that it's crucial to lean on those relationships that can hold us up when things go sideways. All of this also comes down to the effort with relationships, right? Going back to the, you know, why care? Why spend all this time with the wiser model? Why lean into difficult conversations? Why creep your friend out and ask him a question that makes him uncomfortable? Because making the effort to love and be loved can bring joy, novelty, safety, and sometimes it can be life-saving. Thinking about a friend who you checked in on who could have been suicidal. Or there was an example in the study of uh, Nazi Germany where a family was saved because their grandmother was very socially connected and had friends who were willing to hide them out. So I'm just going to repeat that line because I think it's it stands on its own very strongly. Making the effort to love and be loved can bring joy, novelty, safety, and sometimes it can be life-saving. Okay, my friends, we are in the last chapter for today. Chapter 7. The person beside you. Hoo-hoo-hoo, baby. Intimate relationships and how they shape our lives. So clearly the pursuit of intimate connection is not without hazards, is not without hazards. Opening to love risks being hurt. That makes sense. So next, as I read through these, this next chapter, see and hear everything in this chapter through the lens of your own personal experiences. Use it to uncover the wins and losses of your own experience. Understanding your own emotions and how they impact your partner has a huge impact on your life. Okay, makes sense? The study asked questions to these people uh, throughout these throughout their lives. And it was with the goal of understanding affection, tension, and love, and how those dynamics play out. What they've learned from the study is that the keystone of intimacy is feeling is the feeling of knowing someone and being known. That, that, that just feels to me like a ray of sunshine, right? Like knowing someone and being known, knowing that someone else cares and really knows who I am deep down. There was a common issue in the participants of the feeling of not wanting to be a burden or to, or to feel dependent. So the idea of, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to tell them about my problems. I don't want to be a burden and I want to be self-sufficient. I want to be, I want to be on my own, independent. Well, there are problems with that and actually bears out in the data of the study. Those people had worse outcomes who didn't share and didn't lean on others. There's a very famous study that is actually at the root of attachment styles, which may be something you're familiar with. So Mary Ainsworth did the strange situation study. The context is that there's a baby and a caregiver. They go in a room, they play with some toys. Then the 
caregiver, caregiver leaves, and a stranger enters the room. The baby's alone with the caregiver for a few moments, and then the care, excuse me, the baby's alone with the stranger for a few moments, and then the caregiver returns. They observe how the baby reacts, and that's how they develop these attachment styles. So a secure attachment style is where the baby seeks reconnection with the caregiver and returns to an equilibrium. They return to normal. That indicates they're well-adjusted, and they show that they feel they are deserving of the love. So they get a little upset. They get a little scared, maybe. But then the caregiver comes back. They chill out. They reconnect. They're happy. It's a happy baby. Next up, we have anxious attachment. So that's going to be a baby who gets upset, reconnects with the caregiver, but isn't soothed. So after that separation and reunion, they're not really soothed. Lastly, is going to be insecure attachment style. That's going to be where the baby didn't really show that much concern uh, and also didn't try to reconnect with the caregiver when they came back. The researchers theorized that they've learned not to be demanding and they don't want to express this concern because they may have learned that expressing their needs does not result in love coming back to them or it may actually turn the caregiver off. So it's directly related to this idea that, you know, we hear from adults that, oh, I don't want to be a burden. We can see that with infants. Childhood has many of these experiences, and they impact how we interact as adults. So that's very interesting. I I had always heard thrown around attachment styles, but this is pretty damn clear, and I hope you found that valuable too. I thought it was very cool. The benefits of having a secure connection continue through every phase of our lives. Part of that is going to be physical touch and holding hands. So they did an fMRI experiment where a participant uh, was going to be exposed to stress. They were going to get a little electric shock. What's with these fucking shock experiments? Am I right? Come on. Get creative. Don't just shock people. Anyway, holding hands with someone the the individual in the experiment felt close to calmed the activity in the fear centers of their brains and diminished their anxiety. It actually reduced the amount of pain they felt as well from getting the shock. So the analogy here is that, or the indication here is that actually being connected with someone, holding someone's hand, being connected especially if that person is an intimate partner, has huge benefits, can actually, we feel less pain, and we feel less anxiety. Another way to look at this in our personal relationships is the analogy of a scuba diver. So they were a depth indicator when scuba divers go under the water, under the surface, so they can see the depth they're at. Our emotions are like a depth indicator. If we're suddenly very emotional, we know we're in deep waters. We're in something of substance. We're in something real. And we shouldn't shy away from it. We should proceed with caution and with care. But but proceed because that means we're doing something good. We're exploring those edges, which is healthy. Moving on. Emotion and communication. 
Motion between you and your partner are critical indicators of a relationship success. The couples who expressed more empathy and affection in a difficult conversation were more likely to be together five years later. Specifically to the Bro Nouveau podcast and to the men listening, the more the men in the study who turned to their who tuned into their partner's emotions and understood their perspective, the relationship success was higher. So specifically, if the men were tuned into the partner's emotions and understood their perspectives, the relationship was more successful. The stereotype or the kind of common knowledge assessment would be that maybe because women already have that skill set more naturally, they're more relational than men. So it makes sense if a man can kind of if a man can level up and get to that point, their relationship is going to be more fortified. If a couple can build a foundation of curiosity and listening, then their bond will be more stable and enduring. And what what matters here is that it's not the challenges we face, but how we face them. So, are we going to when when challenges arise, as they always do? Are we going to approach them with judgment and with pointing fingers or collaboration? This also is really cool. Um, the idea that there's a difference between having a, a difference between me and my partner and there being a problem, right? A problem is someone cheated. A problem is someone is disrespectful to your family. A problem is a someone is someone makes a commitment, doesn't show up, right? A problem is someone is dishonest and unethical. That's a fucking problem. A difference is they don't like the same food. A difference is they prefer to watch TV and you prefer to read, right? It's, 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 it's scale. It's perspective on, you know, what's, different and what's just me just being a judgmental prick and impatient and then what's an actual problem so i thought that was a fascinating distinction and the book has a very positive spin on it right differences and disagreements and their associated emotions are a a a chance to to revitalize a relationship so i'm going to try to read that without stuttering Differences and disagreements and their associated emotions are a chance to revitalize a relationship by revealing the important truths hidden below the surface. This is also an absolute bomb, knowledge bomb. Okay, so tedious arguments that reoccur. This is from therapy of the authors who are both therapists and who have couples therapy, and from the data from the study. So little arguments that happen that repeat are often down. They're not about the difference, right? They're not about the surface-level difference that the argument is supposedly about, but it's actually about a problem or an insecurity that are seen across relationships. These are being the feeling of, you don't care about me. I'm working harder at this than you. I'm not sure I can trust you. I'm afraid I'm going to lose you. You don't think I'm good enough? Or you don't accept me for who I am? I don't know about you. The first time I read that list, I almost shivered because I was like, wow, these are the core 
insecurities, the core feelings of misalignment that kill relationships. And it was amazing to me that they boiled it down so concisely. Okay, the idea of mutual vulnerability. You know, to talk about those things, to talk about, hey, I think I'm working harder at this than you, or I'm not sure I can trust you. (laughs) That takes vulnerability, right, to get to that conversation. And that gets back to what we talked about earlier. Relationships are inherently going to expose us to risk. Trusting someone enough to build our, our lives around them. This idea of mutual vulnerability is one of the most powerful relational skills a couple can learn, that you can learn, my dear listener, my dear friend. There are two examples here of guys in the study. Uh, one was considered the happiest man in the study. One was considered the unhappiest. The first, the, the question was, describe your relationship with your wife in five words. The first example, comforting, challenging, feisty, pervasive, beautiful. Wow. Okay, second example of the guy who's considered the least happy in the study. Tension, distant, dismissive, intolerant, painful. Oh, I feel like I just went from the Shire to Mordor, you know? God, that sounds terrible. (laughs) So remember now back to the, the fMRI example, the presence of a trusted intimate partner can decrease stress and that stress, we know that stress can affect the healing process, right, of our bodies because we learned that from the biopsy example. The caregivers who are more stressed, their, their biopsy wounds healed slower. Tying into this more, the, the, the guy from the first example who described those beautiful words about his wife and their relationship, he was active and healthy late into life. Example two, tension, distant, dismissive, intolerant, painful, was sickly, in his old life, immobile, unhealthy, had health issues. So it's one example, it's it's one example, but it's a real example from real life of, of these patterns. You know, and in more definitions, the positive couple, the good, happy couple, they confided in each other and they worked through their problems. And they did it, the, the phrasing the authors used was scaffolded it with affection and compassion. The second example, they were distant. They both wanted more intimacy, but they never reached a place of finding that mutual compassion. So, you know, you're listening, you're in your own relationship, you can make your assessment, but I found this to be pretty damning, you know, damning to not communicating, not being vulnerable, papering over the cracks. Don't fucking do that, please. Okay, next up. Intimacy over the course of a lifespan. This is really interesting. If you were to chart out someone's life and then their feelings and their reported happiness over their whole lives, our relationships play a crucial, crucial role in how satisfied we are at any particular point. Think about it. Like, uh, first, so so say someone just divorced and remarried. First marriage, boost. Second marriage uh, is on the rocks, goes down. Divorce, all the way down. Second marriage, boost, right? And what's charting that fucking thing over your whole life? It's your relationships. Really interesting, there's an empty nester boost. So an uptick in satisfaction when the kids leave. And this is really interesting. 
the bigger the boost after the kids leave, the longer the life of those people. So if your parents are recently empty nestering, let them know. They better be enjoying it. (laughs) They're going to live longer. Elderly couples with secure attachment styles reported better moods and fewer disagreements. Nice one. Okay, next up, another question asked from from those guys from the last example, the ones who, the five words to describe the relationship. Okay, here's another question they were asked. When you're upset emotionally or sad or worried about something not related to your wife, what do you do? Example one said, I go to her immediately. Of course, she's my confidant. Example two, the guy who was unhappy, kept his problems to himself, and didn't want to be a burden. What did he say? Of course, he said, I keep it to myself and I tough it out. What does that sound like? That sounds like male conditioning, something we talk about all the time on the Burn of a Podcast. Another example, guys, don't tough it out and don't fucking keep it to yourself. You're not tough. You're not helping anyone. You're hurting yourself and your partner. This also matters because late in life, physical challenges come to the fore. Our bodies break down. Things we used to be able to do, we can't do anymore. Having someone to share our deepest vulnerabilities with can be the difference between despair and a sense of well-being. All right, my friends. We are nearing the end of this episode. I think hopefully you'll understand why I'm not (laughs) uh, doing two episodes There's so much good stuff here Uh, I want to share with you and to give each of these chapters the dedication it deserves because I do feel like they deserve a really good focused attention. Okay, parting shots. Life partnerships have gone from a mutual survival mechanism to something more intimate. And now they're evolving again. So the, the timelines they put on it for all my history anthropology geeks out there Uh, pre-1850 survival mechanism 1850 to 1965 relationships have more intimacy there's more connection that become kind of associated with them marriages specifically now things are changing right globalization uh fuck now with remote remote work people are moving all over the shop right you, you re, people relocate for work. That's how it happens. My parents are from Toledo, Ohio. I ended up growing up in and around Philadelphia because they moved for a job. That that shit happens. But the impact of that is that we're further from extended family, right? If you look at my parents, they moved pretty far away from where their extended family was. And if they had kept moving, so let's say we did 10 years in Philly and they moved to Virginia, now those friendships they made, they have to make new friendships. So when that when those factors come to, fore, come to the fore, our relationship bears the brunt of it. If we don't have our family around who've had those most intimate experiences. We've learned in the previous chapters that you know you can't make old friends, right? So if you're not around those people, what happens? Well, what happens is our relationship picks up the slack and it can become a sponge for everything else that's dissatisfying. So the practical tip here is to mind your relationships outside of your partner. Because 
if those relationships need attention and need fixing up, go fix them up. You'll have fun. They're your friends, right? Remember why you're friends with, with your fucking friends? It's because you like them. So go be friends with them. And then you'll come back a better person, a better person for your person. Another kind of zinger of a line from the book here. They may be your better half, but they cannot make you whole. Some other practical tips here. Cultivate gratitude. A lot of data shows that having a gratitude diary or journal is very effective in increasing overall satisfaction. And then on top of kind of noting gratitude for your partner, so this is specifically have a gratitude journal and include things your partner does for you and communicate it to them. Let them know that you see it and you appreciate it, right? Don't take it for granted. Step out of old routines is the next recommendation. Breaking routines alters our minds to novelty. Therefore, it helps us appreciate and notice our partner. So, example. Kendall's the most beautiful woman in the world, obviously. So I would never not appreciate her beauty. But let's say, for example, we had eaten uh, the same food for the last eight Saturdays in a row and done the same exact thing the last eight Saturdays. Then one Saturday... We go dancing and she's beautiful as always, but now we're fucking dancing, man. I've got my dancing shoes on. There's music. Everyone's looking good. Everyone's feeling good. She's looking great. And then I'm like, wow, babe, you're beautiful, right? So breaking the routine alerts our minds to the novelty and we can appreciate things. We can appreciate, oh, I love those earrings or, oh, are you wearing a different mascara or, oh my God, you straightened your hair. You know, things that maybe I hadn't noticed if it was the same mundane Saturday night. You can notice it now. So we spent a lot of time learning about the wiser model. Use it, particularly in the relationships. Spend time with the watch and the interpret phase. Because with your intimate partner, it makes sense, right? These are people you know the most. You know a lot about their context. You know a lot about their behaviors, so you you have a lot of data to base you know your assessment of why they're doing what they're doing. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Use that data. Here's some more therapist talk for you. Reflective listening. That's just where you echo or mirror back to them what they said. So, so someone Kendall says to me, Thomas, you're a fat piece of shit. <laughs> All you do is drink coffee and watch rugby. A reflective way to listen would be to say, so I'm hearing that you think I'm a fat piece of shit and um, you don't like how much coffee I drink or I'm sensing some type of uh, um, dis, uh, what's the word? Dissatisfaction with my behavior around coffee and watching rugby, right? So you kind of, you kind of reflect it back to them as non-judgmentally as possible. Obviously, it can be difficult in a relationship. And lastly, self-distancing. So look at the situation as if you're watching someone else. So instead of... Um, also, Kendall will never say that to me, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> I just want to clarify that. She's very kind. So self-distancing is looking at that situation as if you're watching someone else. Kind of similar to the idea of if someone else told you the story... You know, how would you, how would you view that person? All right, you beauties, nice work. 
you going back to school here. This book is awesome, huh? Next week, we're going to finish it up. We're going to learn about family. Ooh, that'll be fun. <laughs> Work and how all friends are valuable. And lastly, how it's never too late to be happy. So if you are hearing this and you are unhappy, you know, the book is saying it's never too late to be happy. That's pretty good. Tune back in next week. I will finish reading this book. I will come back to you with the information. Hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, please share it with a friend. I think of all the episodes I've done, these are the most relevant to share with people. It's fucking chock full of good information. Send it out, please. And yeah, just send it out. That'd be awesome. Thank you all for being here. It is my pleasure to bring to you an episode of the Bro Nouveau podcast every Friday. And I will see you for next week's episode, the conclusion of the summary of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness. Thank you. See you next Friday on the Bro Nouveau podcast. <laughs>